Hello, welcome to Fragments, the podcast from the Centre for Blast Injury Studies at Imperial College London. I'm Sarah. I'm Shruti. Happy New Year! So this year, um, we're going to actually start releasing our podcasts on a Monday, so you've got the whole week of work to listen to them. This year, we're starting off um, with an interview we recorded a couple of months ago with Dr Emily Mayhew, our historian in residence at the Centre for Blast Injury Studies, and she's going to talk to us today about paediatric blast injury, so the blast injury that affects children. Quite a long podcast this week. Um, She said so much, but we didn't want to cut any out. She does talk more sense than we do. Yes. Enjoy! Hello, my name is Emily Mayhew and I'm a historian in residence in the Department of Bioengineering and I'm here with Sarah and Shruti who don't like doing introductions. (laughs) So for this podcast, I'm doing the introduction. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Hello, Shruti. Hello. Hello, audience. Uh, Do we want to start with how did the partnership get started? So the Paediatric Blast Injury Partnership started through a complete stroke of luck. It was, and it's very much a South Ken Imperial thing. I was asked, or an Exhibition Road thing, really. I was asked to go and do a late at the Science Museum, and it was themed around war and conflict. We had an exhibition in there that I think you've you may have uh, done a podcast on that called Wounded Casualty and Care, which is about the medical preparation for the Battle of the Somme. Um, and I was asked to go in to give a, a lecture and generally be available to talk about casualty care in the 21st century. So I went in to do the late and I was given a table and I had an, a, an arrangement of prosthetic limbs on my table, mm-hmm. uh, as is normal. And at the next door table was Save the Children. Uh, UK and they were there to talk about the war in Yemen so they were there to talk about a different kind of war and specifically how war affects the children of Yemen which is in every conceivable way imagining and I did a lecture on blast injury which your listeners will be very familiar with by now after four four podcasts if they're not already Um, and I talked about adult blast injury and at the end of my lecture the save the children guy Mark Kay said to me how does this work for children And I said, oh, it's a bit like adult, except about 50% less, I think. And then I said, listen, but hang on, I'll I'll ask someone and I'll come back to you tomorrow. And he said, okay, because we had never thought about this idea. A lot of the children uh, in Yemen are injured through through blast injury. This is the kind of injuries that they're having to deal with. And he said, we just have never thought about it as being something that might be specific. And I trotted back to Imperial and I asked a range of consultants who were paediatric trauma specialists and I said how does this work for children and they said no. The most important thing to understand about paediatric trauma but really in the case of paediatric blast injury this is really relevant, it's absolutely fundamental, is that children aren't little adults, they're little human beings and they have the challenges of complex trauma that's represented by blast injury of in in many ways very specific to children themselves but because everybody thinks they're little adults minus 50% that's the attitude that's taken so a no one's paid attention to specific paediatric blast injury Uh, we don't have any research and b everybody's just guessing so I went back to save the children and I told them this and they said well maybe it's time we did something about it And that's what happened. We formed the Paediatric Blast Injury Partnership after that. So we could look at better practice, better research, and overall better awareness that this is not little adults, it's little human beings. 
I was making notes on this yesterday, and I've got children aren't little adults in a different box. In a little From, box. Yeah. Does it say aren't little adults? That's aren't little, aren't adults. little adults. That's yeah. that any paediatric trauma person will, will tell you. I mean, there, there is a problem with paediatric trauma generally, uh, and paediatric blast injury, and I wish it was a, if I said PBI, it's just people don't know what you're talking about, they think you're talking about PPI, and we're not, we're talking about... So I'm going to say that cumbersome phrase a lot in this podcast. Uh, people, we don't have a lot of trauma figures. The biggest study we've done on, on trauma in Lo- on children in London, I think is made up of a, a study of 70 children, which is not very many, and it's very difficult to get research figures. And that's in London, where we have all the facilities at our disposal to follow up outcomes. If you're looking in Yemen or Syria or Iraq or any of these places where 50% of your blast injured are going to be children, never mind mind following up outcomes, just the treating of them is incredibly difficult. Um, So just gathering together the little bits and pieces that we know, that has already been useful. So we've been going for it. We know when we were founded, we have Partnership Day now, 26th of July is partnership day because that's when Mark Kay and I had tables next door to each other in the science museum and we thought something must be done and we did. Alex is really raising the bar for us. Our Halloween mates next week. Yes, your Halloween, just saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly, just saying. And it's the sort of thing, it was really, I remember going and telling the Science Museum about it, and I said, oh, you know, it'd be nice if you can get this on your, you know, some kind of public awareness points for this, because it's the sort of thing that probably only the Science Museum can do, that it invites these, I mean, they're not random, they're connected, but by theme, not by discipline, not by research infrastructure, not even by history but by the issues that are raised by Science Museum exhibitions. So if I hadn't gone that night, if they hadn't put us on the same floor, we'd be talking about something else in this podcast, but we're not. We're talking about a real emergency. So why why aren't... I, mean, I, can't, I feel like I can't ask this question, though, because in our first podcast, yes. in our introduction, um, I think we talked about paediatric blasts. Yes. Um, we, well, we mentioned it, mm. um, because I um, am subscribed to the newsletter, The Halo Trust. Yes. And there was the story about these two children who had heard about the problems with landmines and they knew they were bad and they went and collected them and handed this adult a rucksack full of landmines that they had picked up because they knew they were bad so they wanted Mm. to help. And every time I think about that, I'm just like, but one trip, one sneeze, one something and we wouldn't have had that story. And I just... I think something that's really important and something I was thinking about as you were talking was 50% at least of the of the injuries um, are children. Mm. But is there a stat? I think I feel like it's probably... Yes. I heard it from you, mm. that more children post-conflict suffer from blast injuries than during conflict. That's exactly right. And it's one of the things that really flags up how complex the post-conflict environment is. So one, the reason that it's more children than adults, because during conflict, you have airstrikes, you have IEDs, you have whatever the, the nature of the explosion is, takes out whole families. But post-conflict, as cities are being rebuilt, children go back to school, they go back to work, they play, they go over the rubble, and they pick stuff up. They pick up landmines either because they know they're bad and they want to take them, but normally what they do is they pick stuff up because it looks cool and interesting. Um, because boys will be boys and children will be children and girls will be girls. And it's quite often an unexploded munition. 
And that's why we know that this is so much more serious for children or, 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 or why we need to take it so seriously. When we started the, uh, the partnership, I was a bit concerned that we might be redundant um, because I thought, well, maybe, maybe, you know, Rakar is falling. Maybe we won't be in, have warfare anymore. And it was then explained to me by Sebastian Taylor, who's at the Royal College of Pediatric and Child Health, that this post-conflict area is by far the most dangerous time for children with blast injury. And it also, again, when we think about blast injury in, at Imperial, at CBIS, we tend to think about lower limb amputation. With children, it's more um, amputation because they're picking stuff up. So it tends to be from the way, they tend to get injured from the waist up. They rarely tread on things. Um, they tend to pick things up or blasts go off and they're lower to the ground. So it's, it is, although we know, I would say, we, need, we know the questions we need to ask in CBIS, but we really do need to reframe them because we're not generally talking about lower limb, we're talking about upper limb, we're talking about chest, image, chest damage, we're talking about things like hearing and eyesight being damaged, head injury. And for, for children in low resource environments, if, you have, if, you, if your eyesight is compromised or your hearing is compromised, what that means is you can't go to school. And if you can't go to school, then your prospects are going to be very grim. So one of the things that we say when I want people to understand this continuum is that blast injury causes illiteracy. And it's a very short step. Illiteracy causes early marriage, bonded labour, all sorts of really difficult things. And it, it, it also means with children, you really need to pay attention as to whether the patient is a boy or a girl. Because the way that their lives are constrained as adults is very different, um, but very grim. Uh, so that's, that it is the story that you tell about people carrying the minds is very typical. Children thinking that they're being helpful or children just being curious, children just being children, getting to a stage in their lives when they can be children again, when they can roam over rubble, when they can pick stuff up. But it's really, really dangerous. Just grim stuff. I'd like it to be redundant. Yeah. It would be nice. I keep Save the Children yeah. always say the thing we really want to do is close the door on the organisation and say, do you know what? We've saved all the children. <laughs> we don't, they don't need us anymore. Yeah, well, but, I guess the solution to that is no war. But then there'd be no there'd be no seabirds, there'd be no us. Absolutely, but wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be cool? Exactly. Yeah. That would be. Then we just work on other kinds of prosthetic hybrid cool. human. And if you think about all the complications for a socket um, for an adult, mm. then think about children who are still growing. Um, we don't tend to give prosthetic limbs out here. So when children either have a congenital uh, deformity or when they have, have had a condition that's meant they've lost a limb, it's difficult for them to get uh, prosthetic limbs because they're growing all the time. And if you think about all those things that you know about kids, when they get growing pains, when they have growing spurts, when, when people complain that they've just bought a pair of shoes or a pair of trousers for their child and three months later they've grown out of them, and if you if you if you put that onto a the idea of a prosthetic, we just have nothing to offer in this space. Um, and so I talk I quite often talk about children in low resource environments getting a prosthetic that is a sawn off adult prosthetic. And people think I'm being metaphorical, but I'm not. That's what they get. They get a sawn off adult prosthetic, an adult prosthetic that's been sawn off to fit. Uh, but they're not little adults, they're little human beings. So you can see the extent of the challenge that we have. One of the first times, I mean, I've heard you talk mm. and I was aware that 
paediatric glass and your paediatric trauma was not the same as, you know, adults. But watching um, BBC The Big Life Fix, yes. this year's one, there was a girl who had lower limb amputation because mm-hmm. um, when she was two, three, she... She had meningitis. Oh, she, oh, this is the bus one, the girl okay. who wanted to do ballet. Okay. Um, and she couldn't do point or demi-point mm. or something because she, her prosthetic wouldn't let her go onto her tiptoes. Mm. And, um, and she was talking about how many surgeries she'd had to shave off the bone as it kept growing because it was growing through her, her residual limb. Yes. And I think that was the point where you heard it and you saw it, or I heard it and saw it, that I was like, I, I'm starting to piece together the things you say. It's not just things a historian is telling me. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Um, this is, and I'm not really, I don't really know why I'm in this space, but, but I, because I'm a historian, I'm not a pediatrician. I must emphasize this for your yeah. listeners. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a pediatrician, I'm a historian. Um, and I'm doing what, looking into the future now, which is really not what we're qualified to do. That's not in the job <laughs> title. But but I am. But you know, it's it. I think as a historian, I have uh, what I'm supposed to do is see the whole picture. And I had what I thought was a pretty good picture of outcomes for traumatic amputations, for blast injury related physiological problems. I just didn't see that in the side of the picture. But actually, what should be half the picture is it should be children. Sounds like no one else was thinking about that either. I think, I, I mean, I don't think it, it's not because I'm especially marvellous. I think that when these injuries happen, they happen at times of great stress for, the, for society. A lot of the focus is on life-saving and on surgery. So the traumatic amputation of limbs is dealt with by a surgeon. And then, as we all know, the really com- and the life has been saved, but I bang on co- consistently, as you know, about life beyond survival. And, and thinking about that, framing that very specifically for a child whose bones are going to go on growing, um, who's going to, at some point, stop being a child and become an adult. Um, thinking about that, how we can make that process easier. Because if the bone is going to keep growing through the residual limb, I, I have no idea how that is tackled in a low-resource environment. We want to make the amputation as good as it can be, but we have no idea how that is tackled yet. What happens once everybody leaves? What happens when once everybody once leaves? Once the surgeon's gone, who, how you fix that up? Absolutely. And it's one of the things that, when, when I'm thinking about a public engagement space, it's an, an image that we're really familiar with, is this the foreign medical team, and they're wonderful and brave, and they save, they have hundreds of lives to their credit. But they go home. And I think when you talk about blast injury in children, I, I often see the very the same image in in. in just in different national contexts, and it's a child lying on a stretcher with an arm with a with an arm stump or a leg stump wrapped in clean white bandages, and people think, oh, phew, it's that's it, it's it's done, it's fine. Mostly, what will happen to that child is they'll get sepsis or post-operative infection, and they won't live for very long. That's that's a real issue at the point of wounding, um, but then what happens to them in terms of their rehabilitation as they grow and as they develop? And there are some extraordinary uh, institutions, uh, humanitarian organisations like uh, Humanity and Inclusion, that, and they do rehab in uh, low-resource environments. And they're not the sexy one. People say, I want to give money to surgeons who go to these places. And I say, no, don't give money to the surgeons. They've got a lot of money. Give it to the physios. Um, so that's, I want people to understand that that, that part, the child on the stretcher with the, ba- with the neatly bandaged stumps is the start of something, not the end. It might be the end of the life, but it, it is the start of a really complicated new life. 
Um, and so I, at the heart, this come, why this comes up to the partnership is at the heart, the heart of the partnership is understanding paediatric blast as a continuum. You know, we talk a lot about this in the department, that it's from the point of wounding through rehab and beyond. So we're, we're trying to tackle all those points that require treatment and intervention. And we're trying to build local capability. There's no point just flying in a swanky team. This is part of our DNA at Imperial. Um, uh, we try to build local capability, solutions that be, can be implemented locally, um, and really have a sense of the rest of that life as it will be lived, affected by blast injury. Because it's not the same as an adult life. It will become an adult life, but it will be difficult. Long way to go before we get to that point. I wonder if the science very amazing like we could do a like a long is it a longitudinal cohort study yeah. and go and take the people and see actually what is happening to the people the children who have got blast injury adaptation how many of them are surviving them after how many years and how are they growing because and i don't think we're going to be able to solve the problem absolutely the and that's really our most difficult problem and it's partly the reason why this has been so under researched because we don't have data we would say we we should have data and at cbis with our military cohort, we've got the best data in the world. We've got, you know, young men who, who are, they are a cohort. They are the same age, the same medical history. We have their medical history and we know everything that's happened to them from the point of wounding. This is, this, your lives are very easy, let me tell you. Um, but collecting data in Idlib or Mosul or Rakar, it's just not what is done. We do have some very basic admissions data for trauma points when... The, the conflict is raging, but we know, for instance, that there were probably there were several thousand people who survived the Battle of Mosul um, back in twenty last year, and 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 they were, they all went to a trauma point, which means that they had traumatic injuries. A, a significant number of them were children. We don't know how many, and we have no idea where they are, because they went to the trauma point and they were admitted. They were treated. They were moved on, which means their lives were saved. But they're now in refugee camps or DP camps. And we have no way of connecting those two data collection points. So we're trying, that's one of the things that we're going to do. I don't think, as a historian, that it's going to be possible. But it might not be. So I'm trying to be devil's advocate with my colleagues in the partnership. And I say, if we don't have data, what is it we're going to do? How, how can we get around that? Because it's too often, particularly with paediatrics, people say, we can't do it because we haven't got the data, because we don't have the outcomes, because we can't follow up. We can't do it here, let, never mind in a low-resource environment where there's ongoing conflict and unexploded munitions and all that stuff. Um, and uh, so if we don't have data, if we're never going to be able to get data or we're not going to be able to get it for a decade, robot data gatherers would be excellent, but and certainly you know smartphones help, but... It's. I just don't think we should make assumptions that we're going to be able to solve this. What do we do if we can't get it? And I think the solution, and again, this is something that I have come to understand because I sit in bioengineering, and the solution is going to be some really advanced forms of biomodelling. So we already have Michael Bertome um, and the team in bioengineering who are working on modelling uh, paediatric skeletal structures. Michael has a particular interest in the stunted, uh, malnourished skeletal structure. Three out of four uh, children who live in a conflict zone, therefore who are likely to be injured by blast injury, are already malnourished or stunted. So it's not <coughs> just that we know we need to know how to treat a child who's injured 
and who's going to go on growing and needs a prosthetic. We need to understand how a stunted, malnourished child who is going to go on growing, but in a disordered way, and who is the most likely to need a prosthetic. This stuff is really complicated. And I think the solution lies in what they call dry biology biomodeling. So I'm one of the, the, the lines of research that we're looking at in the partnership is to try and develop that as much as possible because I think that's going to be fundamental. And it's going to enable us to make, process, uh, to make progress and to set research questions uh, while we wait, I think, fruitlessly for data. But yeah, long-term outcome study would be great, but... Ideal world, right? Ideal world. I mean, you, you know, if you look across, there was a, a, an excellent article in The Lancet where they talk about we need, it within humanitar the humanitarian world, we, we, we have a lot of raw data. The WHO has a lot of admissions data. It's sitting in the digital equivalent of a deep, dark basement waiting for somebody to access it. It's really raw. And maybe what we can do is we can do smaller studies and we can give them better questions to ask because that's the great... The, the great value of CBIS uh, as being part of the partnership is that they haven't got the answers on paediatric blast, but they do know what the questions should be. And, you know, we're not starting from scratch. We know what we should be looking for. That's the start of all good research, though, isn't it? You start don't know the solution. But, but yeah, we so do know what we're asking. You know, so we know about the problems with the socket. We know about pain, but we know nothing about childhood pain. We don't even know... Generally, if children get phantom limb pain, there's been a very small study of children who've had limb amputations because of cancer. And I can't remember what it decided, whether it, we, I think it was undecided. But we don't know if children get phantom limb pain. If we knew that, if, that children don't get phantom limb pain, I think that's really interesting for the studies of phantom limb pain. But no one's ever asked them. Because there's an assumption either that they do or they don't, or it doesn't matter because they're children somehow. And by the time they're adults, they probably get it, but people have stopped asking them, any, them anyway. We don't know a great deal about childhood pain. We're, we're generally not good at that, particularly a child who's been malnourished. You know, if you're going to give advice about post-amputation pain and you have a child whose skeletal structure is unformed or who generally has a, a physiology that's been disrupted by malnourishment, how does that affect not just how we treat them in the trauma ward, but their pain management for the next three or four years. It's really complicated, but we're not starting from scratch. It's, a, it's quite interesting. It can be very depressing when we're thinking about the challenge, but the idea that we do know who to ask, at least to make a start, is very inspiring. It's not often that we're speechless. No, I, yeah, I, it just seems bizarre that it's such because everyone goes, oh, like they love children, they don't want children to be in pain and more, but no one's actually bothered to do anything about it. I mean, I think I, I, I occasionally I, I, I think that you know this is why hasn't somebody paid more attention? But I, as as I come to understand the complexities on the ground, I think it is. It, it, I mean, it, it's. I have a colleague, my colleague Nigel Ty, who works at the Royal London, who's one of our leads at the partnership. He always says that the paediatric trauma, never mind paediatric blast trauma, is at the intersection of three things we're really not very good at. The first thing is paediatric trauma. Um, it's because we just don't get that many cases in our hospitals. It's not a, a, a big learning area. It's still, I mean, fortunately, I'm very happy to say it's something that, you know, we don't, we don't have very much. Although, obviously, in London, this is something that's over the last 18 months, we've seen 
quite a lot of pediatric teenage uh, wounding in, in, in the knife crime and, the, and the, the gang trauma that's inflicted. But again, it's not, this isn't complex trauma. So we don't see very much of it and therefore we're not, we're not, there isn't a, a sort of imperative to develop. Um, like the same thing, the research infrastructure for, for that just isn't supported. We don't focus on paediatrics within blast injury studies. And the other thing that's really difficult is the delivery of this, of, of humanitarian medical care in really complicated spaces with really complicated injuries. So there's all the reasons in the world why people shouldn't pay attention to this. Um, so I, I'm trying not to think, why weren't you paying attention? Um, but what we want to do is really give, we want to be able to say, you've got no excuse, we told you about this now. We've given you a structure to use. I mean, this, this needs a big special centre and agency of its own, and that's obviously our aim. But in the meantime, we want to get critical mass around the subject so that when people say, oh, hang on a minute, I think this is paediatric specific, they can go somewhere and they've got the full academic infrastructure of research in its at the cutting edge or in its current form that they can draw on. They can't say anymore, there's no data, there's nowhere to go, this is a bit of a blur, I'll think about something else. I love how positive you are about that future, whereas for me, when Sarah asked the question, my cynicism kicked in and I thought it was, my gut would say it's the paediatric blast being a majority post-conflict thing. It's human beings and with the media, we see the conflict has ended and, and we want to see that it's solved. Yes. So it's a case of, well, there's a nice white bandage, we've saved the person. Exactly. Cut, cut story, cut film. Cut film. And, and then that's it. And, and as humans in the West, we like to think we've gone out and done something. We've gone out and done it, exactly. And we've solved it, yeah. and it's that saviour thing that humans get. And we don't want to think about the what next, which unfortunately is a majority of children what next what next exactly and that'll be my job once once this is really handed off to the scientists and the medics who do this my job will be to make sure that public engagement really understands that this is a long-term problem but it's a, it's the same issue for us in CBIS that people tend to think Invictus Games Paralympics it's all fixed but it really isn't it's it's a whole life commitment blast injury is for life not just for Christmas I would say um, somewhat cynically, um, but um, but but I think it again. I, I mean, we do. It does fit the news cycle better. The story of the heroic surgeon flying in, doing surgery under by candlelight, and flying out again. That fits the news cycle. It's short. It's an ER episode. It's a Grey's Anatomy episode. You can make a movie out of that. Nobody ever made a movie about rehab. Although having said that, they think they just did. They oh, yeah. made a movie about somebody who lost both their legs in the Boston Marathon, mm. and that's a lot about rehab. But even then, they'll have a it's triumphant ending. Triumphant ending. He's run exactly triumph exactly, and and understanding how complex that is. So I think making people, I, I, it's not that I, I I I'm talking about thinking about this a lot. What can you do when you look at this constant stream of horror that comes on our devices, on our televisions? Don't look away. Look better. Understand what that actually means. Use what you're seeing as a point to understand better and become, in a way, when you do that, you become part of the process. But the bit I could relate to is you're saying that it's not it's not the end. And you mentioned the Invictus Games, and as we're recording it, it's happening this week. Yes. But I guess it'll be a few weeks ago yes. um, as you're listening. And the thing that I don't necessarily really like, but the thing I can really appreciate about the Invictus Games is they don't portray it as, look, I mean, there is a lot of you've all won, you're all winners, yes. we're here, but they still talk about 
the literal horrors that each the individuals are still going through. So they may be a medal winner at the Invictus Games mm. and have achieved what what they are aiming to achieve, but there is still all this stuff around it. This is not the end. This exactly. is just a part of the journey. Exactly. No, so I mean, and, and we, we, we're working, Save the Children are, this is where Save the Children come in. So they handle a lot of the campaigns, they handle the advocacy, and they handle the public engagement. And they have, so their current campaign is uh, called Stop Bombing Children, which seems fair enough. Yeah. Seems like good a really name. good yeah. suggestion. Um, and so the partnership really is, is, the, is the scientific wing of their Stop Bombing Children campaign. And they have an ability to connect with the media and to connect with the public. And so we want them to be able to do that, primarily in terms of campaigning and awareness, but so we, we give them the science that can go with that. And we're, we came together at the partnership simultaneously, and we're both learning that this is a lifetime commitment. Um, you know, what happens when children aren't children anymore? But it came down to when they launched their recent uh, report on the effects of explosive weapons on children. I remember they, they have a remarkable CEO called Kevin Watkins and he, he was doing the press for the report and he, he gave his talk and at, right at the end he said, if we can't save the children, you know, honestly, what's the point? And I thought, exactly. It, this is the really the bottom line. Um, and that, and, and obviously there are other multiple challenges to, to do with saving children, but the, the blast side, we're going to really try and take care of that, and not take care of it, but at least give people the knowledge that they know to make this better. Because honestly, if we can't save the children, what is the point? You know, giving people the right kind of treatment, giving people the ability to, to, to recover within their community, to, bring, to make their community part of this process. One of the, the problems that you have with paediatric blast is that children tend to be injured in a very large group, um, or they, they're orphaned, so they lose both their legs and their family which means that they're going to have to deal with the consequences of this injury as an orphan within an institution or as part of another family with a different set of caregivers. This is all really complicated. And, and that's why we have a continuum approach because we want part of the, our manual to be able to say, you can photocopy this page on rehab, on pain, on diet, on the things that are going to optimize recovery chances for this child in a caregiver setting rather than a medical setting. And that will bring, help bring that community together. Whereas if that community feels abandoned and that patient feels abandoned, then I think that the possibility for, I'm not going to say this is an anti-radicalization measure, but certainly you're going to end up with a lot of people who are very disillusioned, who are vulnerable to exploitation. So this works whatever way you look at it. Medically, from a humanitarian point of view, from a political point of view, it's not just the patient, it's the family and the community of the patient. If we can get that right, that, at the very bottom line, adds to the sum total of goodness on the planet. And, and a lot of the time, I'll just take that. I mean, and this is one of the, when I talk about the, I'm sitting there, you're both looking kind of horrified at me, and I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> this is a, these are faces that I'm used to when I talk about pediatric blast injury. There's all this other stuff around blast injury that, that isn't the technical casualty itself. Children lose their families when they have suffered blast injury, or they're injured in large groups. So we know, for instance, that one of our, our partners was in a part of the world that has a lot of blast injury. In fact, he's still there. I can't really tell you where. Well, it's a bad, it's a, it, you can imagine. And he, he's a pediatrician. He's a trained pediatrician, but he's in the army and he's out there dealing, out there on medical deployment. 
And he, they had eight children who came in because a child had picked up a, an unexploded munition and it had gone off and eight of them were injured. Two of them uh, had died beforehand, but eight children came in with blast injury into the medical unit, which was in fact in, in, quite, in pretty good shape, a very experienced unit. And he said his job was actually not to give them advice on how to do the amputations. It was to hold the team together. Because if you are a medical team that is not experienced in dealing with paediatrics, and even if you are, eight very injured children coming into your unit at the same time is enormously difficult to deal with. Getting the team that's going to deal with them just to face the fact that there are four little beds in the operating theatre that have got children on them, little small patients, not big ones. Just keeping control of the team, giving them the confidence to say, you've done this before, you know what you're doing, everybody hold it together and step up. When, when we founded the partnership, we had a list of things. We asked everybody who came to the first meeting, if you could only say one thing about paediatric blast injury, what would you say? And he said, I would say, keep calm, you can deal with this. I'm not going to give you anything technical. The greatest challenge for an operating team, a medical team, is not panicking in the face of high numbers of blast injured children. It's keeping calm. So that's, again, something that we're trying to address, is giving people the confidence to say, okay, I've got a resource for this, I know what to do, and we need to stay calm and work as a team. Because we do that for adults, we're used to that, but something happens when you see blast injured children, and you need to be very careful about managing that process. I was having a look through the stuff on the website yesterday and saw that one, yeah. and that's the one I remember. That's the one you remember. Actually, we can do this. We, we can do this. Remember. Keep calm. Deep this. breath. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and again, you know, this is people who might be very experienced in paediatric trauma here, across the world, but you tend to see one or two patients at a time. Hmm. Blast injury means that you see seven or eight, and they're very badly injured. I think it's just... I want to say it's wrong, like it's wrong, obviously, but mm. it's children in the wrong context. They shouldn't be shouldn't be there. injured by bombs because they shouldn't be near bombs because that those two things should not be exactly. It's not that anyone should be hurt by bombs. You know no, what I mean? no, no, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's quite often people say, "No, you're absolutely right." They they have uh, they have a memorial at Westminster Abbey, um, yeah. and it's to the innocent victims of warfare. And I always want to say, well, what you're kind of implying mm. is that there are. So I was just trying to say it's the victims yeah. of warfare. I was asked a very interesting question. When you get into the blast injury area, when you, you deal with people like Halo, Halo quite often, it, it's, a, it's an arena where I'd like to make some headway in thinking about this as a continuum injury, thinking about this as more than just the B of the bang. Mm. I'm quite often asked, well, you know, when the child is blast injured, is it because it's an airstrike? Is it because it's a mortar? Is it because it's a, a bomb that's been fired from, from the Allied side, from not from ISIS, not from one of these terrible places, you know, is it, it is it an IED? And I would say one of the things we'll tell you in CBIS is that the laws of physics are the same no matter how the blast wave is delivered. A blast is a blast. I don't care where it came from. I don't care who fired it. I don't care what the, uh, the cause of the mechanism of injury is. The mechanism of injury is a blast wave. Let's just start there. Let's not make this political. Let's not make this about the innocent victims or, or whatever. This is about the victims of blast. It's a very complex injury. Don't get lost, even before the point of wounding, thinking about accountability, thinking about where it came from. It's the B of the bang. That's the only thing that matters. Recently, on this was my sister's wedding a couple of weeks ago, she asked me to do this reading about what we learn in kindergarten, mm. a poem, and it was basically about 
you know, one of the things is you clean up your own mess. Yeah. And I got a few giggles at the one of, you know, you learn to clean up your own mess. Yes. And then Put your toys away. Through. Yeah. Mm. And it's, what if everyone cleaned up their mess? Their rest, yeah. What if, and one of the ones was, and if the government learned to clean up clean their mess. Clean up their own mess, yeah. And I got a lot of giggles and kind of things. Mm. But actually, there's a really serious mess behind it. If whichever government or party or whatever it is, yes. whoever it is, if they cleaned up those landmines after the conflict was over, and I'm saying over in inverted mm. commas, would we have these blast injury, these paediatric blast injury problem? Because if people cleared up when the conflict was to the rest of the world over, Abs- yes, would we have this? So yeah, that's that's why I was kind of smiling. Do you know it's quite it's that. quite an interesting point. And the Fo- the Falkland Islands, where Britain was at war in the Falkland Islands a long time ago, before you were born. Um, it's an annoying thing to say, but it's true. So the Falkland Islands, one of the characteristics of the Falkland Islands conflict is that very extensive landmines were laid on the Falkland Islands by Argentina when they occupied them. And it was decided about a, a, a year or two after the Falklands returned, were liberated, or that's very loaded if you're an Argentinian listener. I, I, I sort of apologise, but not really. Um, uh, I... It was decided not to clear the landmines because it was unbelievably difficult. This was in boggy ground. It was fairly remote ground. You were never going to get all of them. And when you clear uh, uh, minefields, you never get all of them. You might get 99% of them, but there's still one or two. So the decision was taken that this would be expensive, it would be impractical, and that the money would be better spent clearing landmines in urban environments. So in the Falklands, they, the, the minefields are fenced off. Very occasionally a penguin trips. Um, I know, you see, you tell them about the penguin. Uh, you see, you'll never forget this now because I've told you about a penguin treading on the landmine. Um, I, I don't know, maybe a sheep, I don't know. But so these, and eventually what will happen is that the na- we, know, we understand the nature of the materials of the mines, that they will um, they'll, uh, degrade and they won't be, they won't be live anymore. Um, so we need, to, if we're going to do landmine clearance, in a, there isn't a sort of general principle, yes, we should clear all landmines. What we really need to do is be really practical about the landmines that we clear. Um, at, so we need to do it in urban environments, we need to do where people are likely to go. Um, but it may be that we also need to accept that we're never going to get all of them. So either we shouldn't lay a, from this moment on, we shouldn't lay a single landmine. But we will. We, and this is where Save the Children and the other humanitarian organisations are, and like Halo, um, uh, like Halo Wars are, are really focused on saying, don't do this anymore. Because every single one that's added is, is, every, is another one that can go off. Um, it's just creating a lot of very expensive long-term mess. So at the very least, let's not, let's not manufacture them, let's not sell them, and let's not use them. But it's a, that's for someone else. That's not what we do in the Pediatric Blast Injury Partnership. We become involved at the B of the bang. We, we know our limits. Uh, the, science can, the science is there, everything is open access. We'll support people who are campaigning with science, but that's what we do. We don't get involved in advocacy on behalf of weapons control or, expense, or explosives observation. We are about the be of the bang and survival and life beyond survival, and that's what we focus on, because that's where the gap is. Take the politics out, and it's about the people. And it's very, it's something that I'm learning. It can be, it can suddenly become about the politics. People ask, well, wouldn't it be better? And yes, it will be better. And if you want to talk about that, go to another organisation. But don't come to us. We're small, and we're science. That's what we do.
Yeah, I suppose it's just the more clinical thing. We don't really care how they got here. Exactly. We just need to cope with them. We need to cope with them. It's and yeah, and, and I mean, obviously, we kept we. We, we care, but in a science way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We care, but in a science way. Exactly. And it's just a way, of, uh, it, it's an easy thing to get, get caught, up, caught up in. And, it, and when I look at, when I, as a historian, hopefully able to take a more strategic view, when I look at some of the work that goes on, I think you, you, you got siloed in a way, thinking about stopping mine production and uh, highlighting accountability and it's very very important process but it's been done to the exclusion of understanding the science of what happens to explosive to blast casualty and that's part of the reason I think that there hasn't been sufficient focus yeah. again I'm not saying that they should stop but we uh, reframing rebalancing uh, all of this will be helpful I hope I hope God I hope I spend a lot of time hoping at the moment it's not very scientific but. I think the fact that you can still hope like I'm getting I'm wondering is it is it late enough in the day to have a glass of wine yeah, yes exactly yes, <laughs> and, yes and I think it is actually admirable the fact that you still have hope and I I hear what Sarah does day to day mm. and I'm like how how do you do this every day and being the, the scientist here I'm working on the, the stock it stuff and I don't really do the the people side of it so like I'm, I'm sitting here like how how do you still have hope have, well, you have all this misery that you deal with day in, day, and day out? I have extraordinary faith in science. You know, people are saying to me, oh, but science is being discredited. People are coming on the internet. And it's like, no, this too, I'm a historian. This too shall pass. Um, I have extraordinary faith in science. I have extra, so no pressure. But um, I think that provided you can give, you can ask the right questions and you give the scientists, you're not starting from scratch. You give the scientists something to go on, then I think they'll get there. And they have solutions that I hadn't really thought of. Sometimes I think, well, I can see where this should go. Um, but the, if you give them enough information, they'll tell you, like the biomodeling, I sit there being really frustrated about the absence of data. And then I meet the biomodeler and say, but I know what the skeletal structure of a malnourished child looks like. How can we adapt that to the blast context? And like, oh, there we go. That's the sort of conversation that gives me hope. I think it's there. I think the potential is there, the commitment is there. And, you know, if we can save the children, well, yay us. But that's really what we do need to do. I think, so. I think that's why there's historians in Seabus to remind all the engineers that there's squishy people at the there end. There are squishy people at the end. That is our job. And <laughs> exactly. No, it's true. I, I, it was in my master's. I went from aerospace engineering where people weren't like, it was mm. all machines and stuff. It was all machines, and exactly. And I went to bioengineering and things just didn't work the way, that, because there were people at the end Because people of it. at the end of it, exactly. And I just was like, but, but in the end Little people, little human any, beings now. Any people, any people. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and and I've, I've had an appreciation, and I love the fact that we do this podcast because I realise I'm saying things that I've talked to Sarah about yes. or I've heard you talk about. And even in my assessment, I'm writing my report, and I'm like, this doesn't sound very engineering but I don't want it to. Yes. Like, I, I want to be an engineer, but I've never wanted to be an engineer that sits in a lab, yeah. developing something I think is really cool, which might never ever be useful. Yes. And I think the more engineers, I mean, I think, I think engineering, and in particular bioengineering, is going that way. Yeah. But I think the more we do that, the more of these issues we're going to start being able to solve, because we need the engineers to talk to the historians, to talk to the... Yeah, biomodelers to talk to the yeah, yeah. exactly prosthetic designers to talk to the physiologists, all of that, yeah. all and, of that. And I think without that, we're not we're not actually using the research that we've got. I mean, the the thing is, that's why we have research teams. Yes, because one person cannot know everything. No, 
this was this was one of the reasons why I was very keen. I came to, into CBIS when I was commissioned to write a book about Afghanistan, about the the casualty, the com- complex casualty from Afghanistan, which is really blast injury. And my whole practice as a historian is to do wound-centered history. So I didn't look at the medical development, I didn't look at the institutional development. I looked at the wound, and I tried to understand what strategic and tactical decisions had led to that wound being inflicted. How is that wound treated at point of wounding? And what are the consequences for the patient, for their families, for society? As uh, What are the long, those long-term consequences? And so when I first came across CBIS, the idea that this wasn't, well, it is a department of bioengineering, but it's a department dedicated to the wound, and the wound is blast injury. I thought, well, there we go. This is a wound-centered department. I could, I could feel at home here. <laughs> these uh, are my people. These are my people. <laughs> and I remember going in and having a discussion with, with Anthony Bull, our head of department, and saying, can I come and write my book here? Uh, because I know it probably seems a little weird, but at the end of the day, what we both do is we focus on wounding and hopefully what I, the very least I can do no harm everything that I study has happened before <laughs> um, at the very least and because it's imperial and this is that kind of place and because it's bioengineering and because it's Anthony be, because they are used to the idea of building interdisciplinary solutions he said well you know why not um, let's see how we go and you know, four years later, I'm still here, still banging on about this stuff. Um, and I don't think I've done any harm. But I think our job, Sarah, is also to identify the stuff that, that is on, it's not really the art, it's the more creative side, but to identify the killer stats, to identify the phrases like, children aren't small adults, they're small human beings, to identify the stuff that speaks to us that's very clear and very, very relevant, relevant and very simple, and to use it for public engagement, but also to use it when I tell a scientist that. They, it, it completely, that, that's all they need to start thinking specifically about child blast injury rather than adult blast injury. Mm-hmm. So to, be, to, to make their lives easier as well, that's what historians are good for, to help engineers come to the to come to the point where they always remember there's a person at the end of all this. I think it's just reframing the question, isn't it? It's reframing the question. It's a big thing. Sometimes it's even to say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Exactly, exactly. And accepting the fact that if we don't understand it, the chances are other people aren't going to either. So if we can sit there and say, make me understand it, Make make, make Emily and Sarah, the historians, understand what the work you're doing, help us to contextualize it, not just in terms of a larger department or a university or a medical research practice, but also in terms of history. And I, th- I hope it helps them. It will certainly help the people that they talk to and it will help the public uh, understand what it is we do. And I think that we have a unique role in that to do this. It's beyond science communication because we offer that historical context. Um, and, and I think that's our role and I think that's important. I would, wouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. I'm a historian. I have no <laughs> I'm practice. I'm going to agree with that. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to disagree. I mean, I agree with yeah. that, but I don't know if you've brainwashed me in this. So I, I run things. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Just, just drip feeding it in, and and you know, I'm happy now that if when we have a a problem that is is probably more of a systems problem rather than a, a technical research problem, people ask me to come in and sit in in those meetings, um, and 
at the very least I can say when we had this problem before this was how they solved it and it was either successful or it wasn't and therefore either do this again or don't do that that has become a commonplace in our department and I'm very ha extremely happy about that I've always believed in the in the important role of history and it's something that that also Professor Rice has done within pain, pain management at Chelsea and Westminster but this the openness to consider the historical context I hope is I, I know it's valuable and I hope it's useful I think from, from a science perspective it means we're not going to spend time trying to find a solution to a problem there is no solution to or something that we can say putting the numbers into it statistically this isn't going to work but we haven't tried this this has the potential of being so so I think think anything that that gives us that focus which means that we're not spending time doing fancy engineering stuff that someone else has done exactly yeah, it doesn't help people it might be absolutely. really cool absolutely and they might get a good paper out of it but it's not worthwhile exactly in their long run exactly the other thing is that that it's it's really learning to speak olden days i mean you and i speak olden days quite well um i find uh, some of my colleagues who, who do scientific and engineering work they have to explain the language that's used in their papers to me, but I have to explain that things like the descriptions of wound shock and circulation, this is a different vocabulary, but it's the same essential problem. So I'm learning, I've got reasonably good working science, um, uh, but I've got good olden days. So I, I can speak to them in their language, pidgin science, but I can do it. Um, and I can help them understand what, the people facing exactly the same scientific challenges, how they wrote about it, the language they used a century ago. The cutting edge is, it's, you know, it always moves forward, but it's essentially the same place. And it can be a lonely place. If you're on the cutting edge and you're the only per you think you're the only person there, you, you're not, chances are. Someone else has been there before and I can take you to the place where they wrote about it, how they understood it. And hopefully that makes life a little bit easier. I'm just thinking that you know that massive poster I did the other day for Boston? yes I had the piece. name of a muscle I had pictures of a gangrenous muscle on it and you used do. yeah and used the label from the official histories just stuck that in there no one picked it up until I showed a doctor friend from home who went oh that's not called that anymore yeah no one like how many people looked at this at the conference I'd gone through it at work just, it's got a different name now. Oh, I Absolutely. And I should check my captions. I'll check my captions. But it may also be that, that some of them still use the old name. Maybe. You know, exactly. Exactly. But I mean, the fact that nobody said, hang on a minute, that your caption's wrong. Yeah. But actually they just, well, they adjusted or, yeah, it's mm. very, no, it's very interesting. But also there's that illustration in the official history. You're putting that up at a medical conference. Beautiful picture. And it's, it. exactly, exactly. Well, I'll show you. It's hooray, really, this is it's what... It's like watercolour of a muscle. Uh, uh, presumably done at a time when all the photographs would have been black and white so the fact that it's it's in colour is it in colour? Yes. The fact that it's in colour means you can indicate tissue health and circulation yeah, and all of that. Yeah, you can see all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Now we have colour pictures um, but you know a, good, a decent watercolour by a medically informed artist or an artistically informed medic is jolly handy. Yeah. I mean this is a separate podcast so you can cut this out but there is a um, an extraordinary human being called Henry Tonks mm. who was a trained as a surgeon gives up most of the way through um, to, because he w really wants to be an artist. Goes off and becomes Professor of Fine Arts at the Slade School in London. But always, it, but he is a medically, he is a medically informed artist and then during the First World War he goes and becomes a war artist and then he goes and works in a hospital and then he goes back to being an artistically informed medic. He's the sort of point at which these, I mean, we, you know, it is the art of medicine, the art of surgery. That's 
Henry Chung. And one of the things that's really cool about him is that when he was at the Royal London, he studied at the Royal London, um, uh, the Elephant Man was there. Um, he lived there. Uh, and Tonks must have known him. He doesn't write about him, he doesn't write very much anyway. Tonks must have known him. And then in the First World War, he goes and he paints this extraordinary set of watercolours of facial, facially injured casualties that you'll have seen. And one of the things that's remarkable about them is that there's this very cool but compassionate eye looking at the facial disfigurement. And I always think, but this is complete speculation, is that he could do that because he'd seen the Elephant Man and he knew what the Elephant Man looked like. And if you could see what nature could do, then you could handle blast injury, facial blast injury. I always find those ones quite frustrating, the ones that don't have a name, because most of them are named, because they're so personal. Most yes. of them are named as like, their exact, and some of them just say unknown patient. Unknown like, patient. No, 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 he knew exactly who that was. How has that got lost? I, I, I love the fact that you are now a properly patient-centred historian, <laughs> because there are consent issues, and I think yeah. he was painting them not as an artistic representation, but as a medical record. Yeah. Um, and we've... There are some of them where you can align them with their, their photographic medical records, so we do know exactly who they are, but again, there are some of them who aren't. Yeah. But I love the fact that that's become your default now, that we don't know the name of the patient. And, and you th if you think that that's the case for adults, just think about it for children. We just, I mean, the fact that we're saying children, you know, just, they're just kids. They're just kids, and uh, we don't know their names, and we don't know what their lives are going to be like. You know, it's time to pay more attention. This is probably a very daft question. But is anyone talking to the children who uh, live, who've been injured and asking them what's happening? Save the children will do that. Okay. Absolutely. Save the children will do that because they do that. Yeah. Um, they're already engaging with, with individual children um, on the psychological effects of living in conflict zones. Mm. Um, so they had a, a big report on mental health and psychosocial support and outcomes for children living in conflict zones. So what we want to do again is to get them to ask better questions, to have better conversations, to think, to have those conversations with children who've also been blast injured or who may be experiencing within their own family. But that's who takes care of that side. That's why the partnership works so well. Because they're on the ground, they're in the refugee camps, they are in Yemen, they're in Syria, they're in Iraq, they're in North Africa, they're in, play, in Afghanistan, although attacks on this is where attacks on humanitarian the staff from humanitarian agencies is so drastic not just because in incredibly motivated expert young people are getting injured but because those conversations that they would have with locals are then silenced um, but yes that's save the children's doing that yeah, that was also one of the questions I had written down if they've got case studies or they're kind of following studies. absolutely they are and they're um, and again we're, we're they're looking at they're talking about people who are injured in conflict and we're encouraging them to see blast injury where it's blast injury because sometimes it's it's injuries in conflicts for different reasons if it's if it's sniper fire or um, but we're encouraging them to distinguish between the patients who've been injured without a blast wave without blast injury and patients who have so yes the answer is they have they're all looking for that now and they're helping us make those connections when I talk about, you know, blast injury causes illiteracy, bonded labour and early marriage. Um, uh, and they are helping us to make those connections, both in terms of how an injury plays out in a social life and also how it plays out specifically. They're, they're the ones who said to us, don't just say child, see if it's a girl or see if it's a boy, because gender is going to be important in how this is handled. They're the ones who are taking care of that part of the continuum for us. It's obvious you're really passionate about it. It's obviously a very big, a big issue. I guess a child with amputation, if they live their full life, is going to deal with their amputation for a lot longer than an adult with, I guess, additional complications. Mm -hmm. um, so if people do want to get involved, 
with how to help? Is there a way for them to do that? Or do you have to be a historian or a biomedical engineer in the right place at the right time? Absolutely. You can sign up. So if you go onto the CBIS webpage, and I'll, there's a link for this uh, connected to this podcast, you can come onto the Paediatric Blast Injury Partnership page. And it is just a page with some links. We have got really better things to do than... Um, uh, then keep updating the website. We will be better at this, but at the moment we're really doing some quite practical things. So we're producing a field manual, for instance, that's going to go out through Save the Children to local, uh, the providers of treatment and rehab and psychosocial support for blast injured children. And we're really focusing on that. But you can see what we've done so far. We've done a, a literature review, which is about to be published in the Red Crosses Journal. We had an article in The Lancet. Uh, we have a systematic review, which is in preparation. You can see the documents that we've put out so far. The main thing that you can do, well, you can give a donation to Save the Children. Um, if you'd like to give a really large donation in the name of the Paediatric Blast Injury Partnership, please uh, get in touch, because I haven't really worked out how we do that, but it would be great. Um, but really what I want everybody to do is adjust when they see uh, a war zone, when they see children being lifted out of rubble, when they see the, the images that have become really familiar to us on our screens, understand that this is not a short-term problem and it's much more of a problem for children. So start by altering their mindset and then stay, on, stay in touch, sign up and I'll send you some, we'll keep you posted. Thank you to Emily for doing that interview for us. As usual, you can contact us online. We're on Twitter at TRBL underscore CBIS. We're also on Instagram at TRBL underscore CBIS. Or you can get in touch with us individually. I am on Twitter at Legs Dixon. And I am at Shruti Turner. See you next week.